We are continuing in our series on Romans, and we've been in this series for the majority of the year this year. We started it way back in February, just been teaching through the book. Uh, and then in the month of August, we took a four-week break and talked about parenting because it's uh, talking about it's just a phase because we wanted to make sure that we capitalized on this next season, this next phase of our kids' lives. And so we talked four weeks about that. And then last week, we jumped back in, and we're in Romans chapter 9. So if you got a Bible, you can open up to Romans chapter 9. We're going to hang out there uh, today, and then we're going to teach through Romans 9, 10, and 11 between now and the next six or seven weeks or so. And, and I told you this last week, if you were here, but if not, I'll, I'll recap it quickly for you. But these three chapters in the Bible are some of the toughest chapters in the Bible. But the reason why we're going to teach through them over the next seven uh, or so weeks is because they're in the Bible. And so since they're in the Bible, they are there for us to look at and they are there for us to understand. But I, but I told you last week, we got to approach this humbly to understand that, you know, this has created a lot of confusion over the years. People have uh, come to different understandings on these things. And so by no means am I saying I am right, but, but I believe that the strength of a church is based upon the word of God. If you want a great church, then you teach the word of God and you teach it in a way that shows here's what it says and here's why I think this is what it says. And so that's what we're doing. That's what we're committed to doing. And that's why we're not going to skip over chapters 9, 10, 11, because a lot of people, that's what they do. They go from Romans chapter 8 and they go straight to Romans chapter 12 and just kind of skip those three chapters because, you know, that's for smart people and theologians and that kind of stuff. And by no means am I a theologian, but I'm a pastor. And as a pastor, I want to teach the word of God to you so that you and I can grow. That's our our whole mission around here. And so just saying that on the outset to understand as we deal with these verses, you're going to have to think a little bit. And I know this is church and you may not be used to thinking in church, all right? Uh, but we're the kind of church where we want you to think and we want to dig deep because in doing so, we believe that you and I will actually grow. And so as always, before we get started into the word of God, we're going to pray because we know without the spirit of God, we got no chance at understanding the word of God. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to bless us and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for who you are and for the fact that you have been gracious to us. You have been merciful to us. And as we open your word today, God, we ask you to do the same. Uh, because even though we're dealing with concepts and, 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 and theological statements and understandings here um, that, are, that are big and deep, God, we need your help. We need you to help us to understand it and not only understand it, but come to love it. And so, God, I pray that you would equip me to do that and you would equip us all to hear it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start in verse 10. We're going to pick right up where we left off last week, and we're going to work our way down to verse 24 of Romans chapter 9. So if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. The verses are here on the screen. If you don't even own one, we'd love to give you one for free after the service is over today. So Romans chapter 9, verse 10 through 14 says this. It says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, she being Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And then Paul answers it, by no means. So the conversation we were having last week is Paul's heart towards his own people, his own race, the Jewish people. 
And, and we talked last week about how now Paul's laid out in, in the first eight chapters that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And then the, the natural kind of response back to that is, what about the Jewish people? God had made all these promises to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, so is God's word failed. And, and, and Paul started building out last week and saying, no, the reason why is because not everybody who is descended from the person of Israel, who is now, it's now a nation, but it was a person. Now, everybody who's physically descended from him is a child of God. And so we talked last week, and it really tied into parenting, is that it's not about being a child. It's not about flesh. It's not about, I'm a Christian because so-and-so is my mom and my dad, or I came from this family. It's not about flesh. It's about faith. And so not everybody that today calls themselves Christian or calls themselves Jewish because they think, oh, I'm, I'm a part of this because I was born into this family. Paul says, no, no, no. It's not about being born into a family. It's about being a part of the family of God. So it's about of faith. And the example that he used last week is he was talking about Isaac. And he said, Abraham had two sons, uh, the two main ones, Isaac and Ishmael, but not everybody who's descended from him is a child of the promise. Now in verse 10, he's continuing the same argument when he's saying in the same way that Jacob and Esau were two sons, but only one of them was a child of the promise. And so now he's using this again as a way to point back to that fact that not everybody who's a physical descendant of someone who has faith believes. And, and we know that to be true because you might have faith or your grandparents may have had faith or your parents may have had faith, but maybe you don't because being a part of a family in the sense of like they believe doesn't mean automatically your kids are going to believe. And so here's Paul making a statement about the purposes of God in this passing on the family of faith or this lineage of faith. Now in doing so, in explaining this, this brings up a lot of questions. I mean, a, a lot of questions. And again, I want to recognize that on the, on the outset like I did. There's a lot of questions that come out from this because we're going to talk about God and how he works. And so there's a certain level I want you to understand, and I'm going to say this all the way through, and I don't want you to think it's a cop-out. This is what I'm saying on the front end. There's going to be some questions you're like, what about this? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And the reason is because I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm not God. But I don't know if you know this or not, you're not either, right? So all of us have a limited understanding is what I'm saying. And Paul recognizes this in Corinthians where he says, we see through a mirror dimly right now, like there's a veil, like we don't understand everything. However, there are some things that we can understand. And this is what he's starting to outline here. When he talks about the purposes of God in choosing certain people. And he's using Jacob and Esau as examples. Now, if you don't know the story of Jacob and Esau, I'll, I'll kind of recap quickly for you. They were twins. As one preacher said, they were womb mates. That's a preacher joke there for you, all right? I know it's not that funny, that's why I recognize it, all right? But they were twins, and, and so using them as an example to say, hey, if, if there's two people that are the most alike, more than anybody else, it's twins. Now, they're two individual people. However, they are the most alike. And these two boys, Jacob and Esau, were in their mother's womb, and God made a decision before they had done either, either one of them, before they had done good or bad, and he made a decision to choose one over the other. 
But here's the crazy part. He made the decision to choose the one who wasn't born first. And and what that means simply is this, and it's a little bit different in our culture today, but back then, the oldest son got the biggest blessing. And so he would have gotten two-thirds of his father's estate, and and Jacob would have only gotten one-third. And so Esau was first, and, and the story says that literally as they were born, Jacob, his name means he was grabbing his brother's heel, and he was trying to pull his brother back in so he could get out first. Homeboy had some issues, all right? But Esau was born first, and so therefore, in the normal order of things, from a human perspective, everybody would have said, yeah, you choose Esau. But God doesn't do what everybody says he should do. God has the right, and this is what Paul's saying, to make a choice. And he chose the younger to serve, or the older to serve the younger, which means the younger is first. Now, I love this scripture because I'm the youngest of three. Come on, somebody. <laughs> all you are younger, like, yeah, and all you olders, you want to beat us up after service is over. I get that and understand. Deal with God, though, all right? And so <laughs> here's the point, though. He didn't choose based upon what we think God should choose. But that's really not our issue. Our issue, if we're honest, is we don't think God should choose at all. We don't think that God should choose one over the other. And here's the argument Paul's making. They hadn't done anything good or bad because how most people think about God's choices is they say, they say, well, God looks throughout human history and he sees the choices that people are going to make and he sees those that are going to choose him and he chooses based upon their choices. But Paul says, no, they hadn't done anything good or bad. And this is not because of works, not because of anything they had done because they weren't born yet or anything that they would do by implication in the future, but simply because God had a purpose. But this is naturally when we got, especially in our Western individualistic mind, and we think, hold up. That's not, what would you say? Fair. Fair. So you think this way. I think this way. When we look at this, we're like, no, how dare God prefer one over the other? Now, we as parents, we would say politically correct, you don't have a favorite kid, but you lying. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I don't know. I'm not. No, you love your kids equally, but, but this is not talking about how Rebecca felt about them or how, how their father Isaac felt about them, but this is God saying he chose one over the other. Not based upon what they had done or not based upon anything that they would do, but based upon God's purposes. But our response back to that is, well, that's not fair. Esau deserved the same blessing that Jacob got. By whose standards would we say that? By whose standards would we say that God owed Esau? Because here's what I know about Esau. Again, the story goes on that in reality, Esau actually sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of soup. Now, I love some food, but I got to be straight with you. I ain't trading in some for some soup. You better throw some brisket on it. You better throw some steak on it. I mean, we better be talking about half a cow or some sweets, or I had some beignets yesterday. You better throw something down more than some soup. And so apparently Esau doesn't know how to make good decisions anyway, and he didn't judge correctly. 
So when we think about, well, Esau deserves this. No, 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 here's what you need to understand. Esau is crooked. Esau obviously was willing to trade God in. He was willing to trade in the blessing of the lineage of what God was doing. And so when we say, well, he deserves that. No, 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 my friends, here's what we need to understand. All Esau deserved was punishment. All he deserved was judgment. But it's not even that. Here's where it's the phrase where we see that God says, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. We read that and we're like, hold up. It is not right for God to hate somebody. Here's one thing I know to be true about Romans 9, verse 13. Ain't none of y'all got that on a coffee mug. <laughs> none of y'all got that on your Christian t-shirts. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. <laughs> no, you got Jeremiah 29, 11 on there, right? Which I know, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying, look at the whole Bible. But, but here's what you need to understand about this statement. So let's deal with this statement. Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. This is what's called a Hebrew idiom. And what that means is, I told you you had to think, it's a Hebrew expression. Again, when we come to the Bible, we have to come to it as objectively as possible. And what I mean by that is, is we can't read into it our cultural sensitivities. We have to allow it to say what it was intended to say to the audience it was intended to say it to. And so here, God is speaking in a way in a very similar way, by the way, to how Jesus talked, who is God, in Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus is talking about the cost of following him. He says, listen, nobody builds something before counting the cost. So if you're gonna follow me, you need to count the cost before you follow me. And here's the cost. If you don't hate your father and mother, and you don't hate your own life, you can't be my disciple. Again, no one puts that on a shirt. And, and, and this is where I want you to understand something. We either read that and we're like, hold up. Is Jesus saying I have to hate my father and mother? Because if I remember my Bible in Exodus chapter 20, in the top 10 of the 10 commandments is a commandment that says to honor your father and mother. So obviously Jesus and hereby the same idea, God is not saying, yes, you should actually hate your mom and dad. You should actually hate your own life. If we put that as a requirement, like if you came to our, our welcome lunch next week and, and the stewardship requirement to join the church, do you hate your family? Some of y'all would be like, yeah, I can join. <laughs> right? I'm going to be honest, it's church. But that's not what he's getting at because he would be contradicting the Bible. No, here's what Jesus is saying, and then by definition, what God was saying in the Old Testament, he's saying, listen, no, what I'm getting at is compared to your love for me, you should love me more. Here's what Jesus was saying there, I will not be second, I'm first. And so compared to your love for me, it should look like hate to them. He's not saying actually hate them. So when God says, Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it, he's not saying that, yes, I hate him, I despise him. He's saying, no, compared to my love for Jacob, I love Jacob more because I have a unique plan and purpose for Jacob. And so it's in that phrase that we look at and like, well, well isn't God supposed to love them equally? Is that, that's wrong for God 
to love Jacob more than he loves Esau. He doesn't hate Esau, but compared to his love for Jacob, for his purpose and his plan for Jacob, we look at that and like, man, even if he doesn't hate him, that's not fair. Which is why Paul, because he anticipates the objection, he says, so is there injustice on God's part? And then he answers it, by no means. And then he explains it, why that's the case. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, this is God, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will will or exertion, that means works, but on God who has mercy. Now let's stop and chat here for a second. Again, this is where I really need you to think. When God, looking at humanity, when he makes a decision towards humanity, it is within his right to judge humanity. Here's why. Again, all of us, if you're a Christian, you, you believe Romans 1 through 8, and you don't have an objection to that. And here's what I mean by that. Have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yes or no? Okay, so you would agree with that. Yes, all have sinned. And as a result of all sinners sinning, does God have the right to punish them, to judge them, yes or no? Okay, so that's the baseline standard. So, therefore, God owes all human beings justice because he is a just judge. He owes all of us justice. But let me ask it in another way. Does, does he owe any of us mercy? No. No. He does not owe any of us mercy. So when we look at Jacob and Esau and we think, Esau got justice. Why did Esau get justice? Because he sold out God. He sold out God. He is a sinner. And so God has every right to give him justice. What does Jacob deserve? Does Jacob deserve mercy? No. From the womb, homeboy was grabbing ankles and deceiving. He's a sinner too. He deserves justice. So Jacob and Esau are equal in the fact that they both deserve justice, and you and me are equal in the fact that we deserve justice. There is not a human being who has ever lived that deserved mercy. So we gotta start there. So the question is not, why doesn't God have mercy on anyone or everyone? I just ruined the punchline there. The question is not, why doesn't God have mercy on everyone? The question is, why in the world does he have mercy on anyone? So you see how we're thinking about it wrongly? Because when you start saying that God has to have mercy on somebody, you're no longer talking about mercy. You're no longer talking about grace. You're talking about works. God has to give them mercy. No, he doesn't. So here's what you need to understand. Here's Paul's argument. Listen, all of us deserve justice. Some of us get justice. Some of us get mercy. But none of us get injustice. None of us get injustice. See, injustice, the word that Paul used there in verse 14 means unrighteousness. 
Anyone here willing to say that God owes everybody mercy and so therefore he is unjust or unjust to some people? I'm not willing to say that. But that's what we're, listen to me church, that's what we're saying when we say that's not fair. When we say that's not fair, we're saying that God isn't good enough. He should give them mercy. And Paul says, God made it clear. He's gonna have mercy on who he has mercy. He's gonna have compassion on who he has compassion. And then he uses Pharaoh as an example. Look at the next verse. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And this is when you're like, hold up, pastor. Like, I was trying to track with you before, but he hardened? No, I'm done. What do you mean he hardens who he wills? I I get that he can have mercy on who he wants to, but this makes it seem like, when he's talking about Pharaoh, that Pharaoh did what he did because God made him do it. He hardened his heart. And you go back and read Exodus, and again, I don't have it on the screen, just write it down as a reference, Exodus four through 14. There are several times in the Bible where it says God hardened his heart, but there are several times in the Bible where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so we look at that and say, who hardened his heart, God or Pharaoh? And we would say to that, yes. If you've been here for years, you understand that apparent contradictions to our mind are not with God. So what in the world does this mean? Here's what it means. Did God create unbelief in Pharaoh's heart? No. Pharaoh did that all to himself. Because here's what we need to know about Pharaoh, and it's kind of hard for us to understand, although we can see this around the world still today, but Pharaoh in Egypt were the most powerful the most powerful nation on the planet at that time. And Pharaoh was the most powerful individual at that time to the point where he and the Egyptians thought that Pharaoh was divine, that this was God in the flesh. And so if you've ever seen the movie 300, this is the idea. And when the guy is, they realize he's mortal, it messes up their whole theology. Because this is God, I mean, this is the whole idea, right? Of this whole pantheon of gods, that one of those gods had a kid and he's standing in front of us and that is Pharaoh. And so when they saw that, here's the most powerful man in the most powerful place in human history. And God says, I hardened his heart. What does that mean? Here's what it means. You gotta go back to Romans chapter one. In Romans chapter one, Paul says this. Because of God's wrath, his judgment on us, he gives us over to what we really want. So this hardening that God did with Pharaoh was a passiveness. Here's what it means. God took his hand off and says, oh, you wanna be God? Go for it. You want life without me? Go for it. You want to build a kingdom to a name to yourself where you think you're God? Go for it. Then watch what I'll do. My friends, here's what we need to understand. The active judgment of God is him being passive towards you and letting you have what you really want. It's it's the same for all of us. 
And this is where we wrestle. We're like, hold on. But, the, but that, I mean, that person did sin. Why doesn't God zap them? I don't know. Why doesn't he zap you? See, we never think about it like that. The reason why he doesn't zap them is because he's letting them live out what they really want, which is God. And here's what you need to understand about hell, by the way. You want to understand what hell is? Hell is God giving humans for all eternity what they want, which is life without him. So when people say, how could a loving God send people to hell? No, they sent themselves there. And so all of eternity is them thinking they still know better than God. Have you ever read the story of Jesus and the Lazarus and the rich man where he tells the story where the rich man goes to hell and, and Lazarus is in heaven? You, you remember that story? And he's like, hey, tell them, the rich man's in hell. He says, tell him to send down water. Notice in that story, the rich man does not ask to get out. He's still commanding God. He doesn't want out because he doesn't want God. And so when you look at the stories of the Bible, people like Pharaoh, when God allows him to rise up to what he really wants, and he says, I'm gonna allow that because in you I'm gonna show my power. Watch this. I'm gonna take you down with some gnats and frogs. So we read that and we're thinking, well, that doesn't seem fair. My friends, Pharaoh got what he deserved which was justice. He did not deserve mercy. No one does. Now, now look, look at verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, Paul anticipates this objection, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? Now, that is so important. To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. See, here's the false premise that we're working with when we think about those God, who God has mercy on and those who God judges. We're thinking that those who God judges were good and they got a raw deal. And we wrongly think that those who had mercy made a good choice. But God says, no, no, no. Here's what you need to understand something. All of humanity's in the same lump of dough. This is a baking term, which I can get. Here's what you need to understand. The only people God can have mercy on is sinners. That's the only group of people. So if you're here today and you're thinking, there's no way God can have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Well, that's actually the only people he can have mercy on. You can't earn it and you don't deserve it. And so don't come up in here thinking there's no way he could love me. Listen, what you deserve is justice, but the fact that he gives you mercy doesn't mean you earned it. It's because he loves you. But don't think for a second that there are some people that are coming out of a good lump and some coming out of a bad lump. No, they all come out of the same. So this is the false premise when we think well, there's good people and bad people. No, there's Jesus and everybody else. So does God have the right over those out of the same lump of sinners to judge some and have mercy on some? Absolutely he does, because he's God. 
And just a little side note here. When we start taking the place of God in our minds and thinking that God is somehow not good enough, or if we, let me say it to you like this. Have you ever thought that if you were God, you would have done it different? Can I just be honest with you? I have. There has been more than a handful of times, i.e. a lot of times, where I think if I were God, I wouldn't have done it like that. But you know what God says back to me very lovingly? I didn't ask you what you thought, homie. Because I don't have to. Because we're not equal. I made you. You didn't make me. No one made me. I've been having this conversation with my nine-year-old because she doesn't understand it because it's hard to understand. Who made God? Nobody. How long has he been here? Forever. It blows our minds. He's always been here. What we see has not always been here, but he has always been here. Nobody made him. He made us. And guess what we did when we made us? We rejected him as our maker. And so I'm just saying, church, we need to come to God very humbly and say, not who are you, but who am I? And, and, and there's just a lot, the, the, the cultural air that we breathe today is this idea that if there's a God, we don't know if, but if there is, he's for sure not good. And Paul says back to that, who are you? As I told a teenager one time when he was talking about God, I said, here's the deal. You go make your own planet and run it your way and then tell me. Well, I can't do that. All right, until then, the question is not, why doesn't he save everyone? The question is, how come he would save anyone? when we have that posture towards him. And this is the last couple of verses. Look at this, it's so important, verse 22. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Next two verses. In order, that's the purpose statement, he endured this in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And the only reason that's a question mark there is because he's going to answer it in the next few verses, which we'll get to next week. But let me wrap up with this section. Two things that he says here. All of us deserve justice, and God has endured with patience those vessels who are going to get justice, and he says it like this, prepared for destruction. Now, this is the part where if I hadn't lost you yet, people are like, see, I can't deal. He prepared people for destruction? No, that's not what Paul says. The word there, prepared, is in the passive voice. So here's what that means. God didn't prepare them for that. They prepared themselves. God was passive in that. This goes back to the hardening conversation with Pharaoh. 
God just took his hand off and gave Pharaoh what he wanted, which was a life without him, and then showed his power and says, you think you're God? You're not God. Watch this. And so those of us who don't trust Christ, we were not predestined to an eternity without Christ. We chose it. We chose it. God didn't prepare us for that. He didn't make hell for us. You need to know that. He made hell for Satan and his demons. But everybody is headed for there because we don't think we need God because we believe the lie of Satan that says, I can be my own God. So we prepare ourselves for that. We don't need any help from God is what I'm saying. But notice what he does say. So let's get to the positive here. What he does say in verse 23 and 24, he endured all those people not wanting him in order for those he has prepared. This is in the passive voice. He has prepared beforehand for glory. And then he says it like this, even us whom he has called. My friends, I understand these are big truths, but I want you to understand why I love them. The reason why I love these truths is because by God's grace, I can see now what I deserve was justice and I was preparing it for myself, but God in his goodness prepared something different for me. And now I'm so glad that he prepared that, that he saved me by his mercy. And this is why, again, this is why I love this because I want you to understand something. When people use words like irresistible grace, they're like, oh, I don't think that's right. See, we always think about it in the negative. We think, well, it's irresistible. And, and so it can't be irresistible if God's loving. No, 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 that's a misunderstanding of the phrase. Here's what I'm saying. God can overcome my resistance. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying I resisted him for 13 years. I'm saying I was preparing for myself destruction. I was doing that to myself and God was allowing me to do it to prove a point to me that there is a God and it's not me. And so the good news of the gospel is God decided to step in and he decided to give me mercy. But the only way he could give me mercy is if he took my judgment on himself because God can't not give me justice, but Jesus got the justice I deserve and I got the mercy that he earned for me. And so if you're here today and you're like, this isn't fair, then you haven't understood it rightly. What you should say is why would he save even us? Why? I rejected him. I don't want him. Even me. And what I'm saying is even you. The good news of the gospel is God can overcome your resistance to him. He will give you mercy. Why? Because he delights in it. 
So, so don't see this as a negative. You're like, well, I don't understand it all. Guess what? I don't either. But I don't have to understand it all to know that I need somebody to save me. I don't have to understand all God's ways to understand that he made a way. Because I'm not God. So the question is not, why doesn't he save everyone? The question is, why did he save anyone? Why did he endure such pain, such agony, such ridicule from those he made to die on a cross? Why would he do that? When he doesn't owe that to me at all. It's because he delights in showing mercy. So my friends, let's be very humble. And, and when you start thinking in your mind that God owes mercy to people, let a bell go off. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. But the miracle is he gives it even though he doesn't owe it. And so if you're here today and you understand the fact that you don't deserve mercy, but God in his grace wants to give it to you, then he has opened your eyes to see he's overcoming your resistance to him. And so if you'll respond in faith and receive that mercy, you'll be saved. But there's also some of us here, which I would be in this category, That if he saved you by mercy, then he's going to keep you by mercy. That's why I love this. Because see, if I earned it, then I can lose it. But if I didn't earn it, and he earned it for me, then his sacrifice was sufficient for all my past, present, and future sins. God will always be merciful to me now because I am in Christ. And I don't know about you. If you're a believer, I need to be reminded of that. I didn't save myself in, so I can't send my way out because it's on mercy. And so if you're here today and you've trusted Christ, the response is still the same. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's called repentance. And so you don't repent once and then you're saved. Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. Because you understand, I don't deserve this. But because of his mercy, he gave it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. It is heavy and we don't understand it. We are limited in our understanding. But God, help us to not think wrongly about you and think that you're somehow unjustified in giving justice. Every single person in here, if we were wronged and someone didn't pay for it, we would scream, that's an injustice. 
So therefore, you are not wrong in judging us who are wrong because you're just. You're not a crooked judge. So you have every right to judge us. But God, thank you that you're also full of mercy. And that those that are in Christ, you judged Christ in our place. You took our punishment. So God, we can't come to Christ until we understand first that we deserved it, the punishment. So God, I pray right now for those who are here and haven't trusted Christ. Would you open their eyes to see the truth about their sin and enable them to respond in faith and be saved? Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never trusted Christ, the invitation is to all. And so the writer of Hebrews says, today, don't harden your hearts. So if you want to trust Christ because you understand that you deserve judgment, but you want him to take your judgment so that you can receive mercy, then I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray and trust Christ and be saved. So if you want to trust him, you can pray with me, not out loud, and it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son Jesus in my place for my sin. I deserve judgment, but because of Christ, I get mercy. So would you forgive my sin? Cleanse me. Thank you so much for loving me. Now, if you just prayed that, again, nobody looking around or talking, if you just trusted Christ, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Just lift it up. Don't, don't be ashamed, man. Come on. Thank you. We got men and women going to walk around and put a gift in your hand. This is the greatest day of your life. You just received what you didn't deserve, which was mercy. Because Christ took what you did deserve, which was judgment. Then for those of us who have trusted Christ, like myself, I hope today that you've been encouraged to know that God saved you on sheer grace and mercy. And so if he saved you on that, then he is full well aware of your sinful condition. And yes, he wants you to sin less often, but he'll enable that by his spirit. He wants to transform you into the image of his son, and he will do that by his spirit. But just because you still struggle with sin doesn't mean you're outside of his mercy. And he will continue to give to those in Christ's mercy. So be reminded today that he has mercy on you, and his mercy is enough for all your sins. Father, we pray that you would apply this to our hearts. Thank you for the scripture and how it builds into us. And for anything that I didn't cover or any doubt that exists by your spirit, would you fill it in? Would you help us? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.